off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Amen. We're starting a new series of messages this morning that I'm really excited about. I think it's going to be great for us for the opening of the year. I hope you'll be here for it. Today's going to be an introduction to it. We're calling it Untangled, and we're going to talk about how to untangle our schedules and, and our health and our relationships and our finances. In fact, that's one of the reasons that we as a church are doing Financial Peace University over the next couple of months. So I want us to begin this morning with really an awesome, power-packed passage of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Some of you are familiar with the New Testament. You may have heard this before, and we're going to unpack this today as we kind of look toward untangling our lives. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, this is such an awesome passage of Scripture. I want us to go old school this morning and stand out of reverence for God's Word as we read this. So let's stand together. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, it's toward the back of the letter of Hebrews. You know, we don't know exactly who wrote Hebrews. Some people think it might have been the Apostle Paul. Most think it wasn't. Most think history has, that's been lost to us. So when I talk about it this morning, I may say the author of this letter or the author of Hebrews. Here's chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and let's do something different this morning. I'm going to have you read it with me. Let's read together, Hebrews 12. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. That can also be translated the author of our faith in the sense that he's first or in the sense that he's the one writing it. And I prefer the translation, the author, in fact. Let's go for the joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Father, I pray that you'll take that and speak to us today. We really believe that you do that. And we bring as much as we know of ourselves this morning to as much as we know of you. That is all we can do, and we're so thankful it's all you require. So we want to hear, and we pray that you would break open our chests and massage your truth in. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Okay, this is a ball of string. Boys and girls, welcome. We're so glad to have you with us today. If you've got ideas about how this ball of string can be used, I want you to come up and tell me later. I thought about this, and I thought, you know, it's all in a knot. And this is one of those knots that, you know, I could either leave it like this, or I can spend an hour trying to undo it. And so I thought about what can I do? use this for. I tried this as a book stop upstairs in my office. doesn't work, you know, string. Book's heavier, book falls over. It is, however, a doorstop. 
if you put it in the right spot. If you put it on the ground, the door just closes. But if you kind of put it right in where the, you know, the latch is, the door that locks, it can keep it from locking. You can also use it as a toy, I guess. I could toss it out. I won't, but you can toss it around. Other than that, not a whole lot of use. This is an exactly designed, they're exactly the same. Another piece of string, but it is obviously untangled. They're actually the same size, exactly. Same string, same material, cut off the same spool. Now, to me, this is more elegant, but it is far more productive. You can tie something onto the back of your bicycle and, and carry it with this. You could, if you and I are out on the lake in a boat, we come up to a dock, I get off at the dock, I don't want you to float away, I could tie one into the boat, tie the other into the dock, tie things together. If I take the boys and girls in here this morning to an amusement park, I'm not going to, you're too wild for that, but if I took you to an amusement park and I wanted to be a little bit abusive and, and also wanted to keep up with you, I could tie one end around my wrist and then tie the rest of you on to this. We could stay together. There are a lot of uses for this. It's more productive this way because this is how it was designed. If you write up the definition of string and what it's designed for, it looks like that. That's a perfect illustration, I think, for our lives. When we're tangled up, we're less productive. We are less productive relationally. Stuff gets messed up. Stuff gets in the way. We're less productive in our lives. We're, we get less done. We're less productive at work because we were designed to live untangled. Our relationships can get tangled. Our schedules can get tangled. Our, our health can get tangled. Our finances can certainly get tangled. And over the next several weeks, we're going to take different ones of those topics and talk about untangling them. We're going to try to be as practical as possible. But this morning, we're going to give a kind of general introduction to untangledness. And we're going to use that unbelievable passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 as our launching point. And let's break that apart and analyze it. But let's start with a, a big picture notion. And this is the don't miss this principle today. Look, if you miss everything else, don't miss this. We've got somewhere to go, and we're not going to get there if we're leading tangled lives. We've got somewhere to go, and we're not going to get there if we're leading tangled lives. So as we break apart Hebrews 12, we got to do that by hitting some high points. And the first high point that we've got to hit is the first word in the passage, therefore. I had a uh, seminary professor who used to say, whenever you see a therefore, you've got to ask what the therefore is there for, because it always connects one thing to another, and this does. This connects what we say in Hebrews chapter 12 with what was said in Hebrews chapter 11. And what happened in Hebrews 11, some of you know this because you know that part of the Bible. What happened in Hebrews 11 is the author just goes through this catalog of Old Testament saints who were really faithful. In other words, they did it up. They saw the, the, the thrilling life of faith that was possible, and they lived it. Even through difficulty, even through trial, they lived it. And one after another, he tells he just reminds us, and they're not really full stories, but he reminds us of these awesome Old Testament stories. You can almost hear the, the people in the congregation at that time saying amen after each one of these testimonies. And, and then he says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, obviously what he's done is he has brought us, the author has brought us into the avenue of an athletic event, into an arena. I don't know if he had 
just seen a big race or maybe several times in his life he saw the ancient Olympic Games, but that's the, the environment that he's brought us into. He's got us at the starting line in, in a competitive race, in an arena, and then this is a beautiful analogy for our life, our faith walk, and he says, here we are, the gun's about to go off, so therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that word witness is our second stopping point. Now, that word witness translates the Greek word martus. You might recognize that. That's where we get our word martyr. The word originally meant simply witness, as in spectator. But by the time the New Testament was written, and certainly within Christian context, martus had begun to acquire the meaning of a martyr, of someone who suffers. I want you to look at these two passages as an illustration. Acts chapter 22 And when the blood of your martyr, same word, Stephen, was shed, and this was the first person really who died because of following Jesus, because of the Christian faith. Revelation 2, the first of Revelation, he's writing letters to ancient churches, and to one of those churches he says, I know where you live, Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, same word, martus, who was put to death in your city already, By the time of the writing of the New Testament, this word had begun to mean martyr. So spectator is not a strong enough understanding for this word in this context. Hebrews 12, the martyrs, the witnesses, are are witnesses in the sense that they have already run the race. And they know that it can be done. They stand as a testimony to the possibility of the thrilling life of faith. So imagine that all of us are standing at the edge of a river. Here's a river, terrible current, broad. There's rocks. We're in danger. But we know that we've got to cross because there's an army after us on, on this side. So here we are, and there's one kind of witness that can stand here and say, we got to cross. Ed, we're with you. Go. Another kind of witness would be Becky Bellino, who would dive into the water, swim across and traverse the current, almost fell off, get to the other side and yell back at us as a witness that it can be done. Hey, come on over. I, mean, I made it. Uh, watch out for that rock in the middle. These are the witnesses in Hebrews. These witnesses inspire and encourage us. This is one of the reasons that we read their stories. They remind us that we can make it. Now, with this introduction, the author sets up the real activity of the passage, which happens in verses 2 and 3. And that activity comes in the form of three powerful encouragements that will help us lead untangled lives. Three powerful, practical encouragements that will help us lead untangled lives. Encouragement number one, we've got to throw off everything that hinders Throw off everything that hinders. I want us to keep about this encouragement. I want us to keep three things in mind. Number one, I want you to notice how active this is. How active this really is. The English Standard Version, New King James Version, other translations of the English Bible, they say of this phrase, lay aside every weight. There are things that weigh us down and they must be laid aside. They will not just disappear. They must be laid aside. We have to throw them off. Two things come to my mind. Some of you know me long enough, you've heard me say this before, but early in my marriage, Diane and I were on the verge of sowing some kind of unhealthy habits into our marriage because of the way we argued, our conflict style. And often when we got into conflict, Diane's way of managing conflict was to withdraw. 
I don't want to see you. I don't want to talk about this with you. I'm mad, and you're the one that made me mad. Go away. My style of doing conflict is to win. I thought that was the purpose of an argument, to win it. So we would have times in our early in our marriage when I was literally chasing Diane around the house. I'm not finished yet because she hadn't surrendered. I had not won yet. And it took me a while to realize that even when I won, I didn't win. There were several early arguments where I felt like, what just happened? I won that argument. Why is this so terrible? I began to realize, God began to show me that this was about me. And I, I had some dramatic adjustments to make. Number one, I approached arguments by uh, listening to Diane, not to hear her, but to figure out what I was going to say next. And I always acted as my defense attorney and her prosecutor. And I really believe God told me, you know, you need to be her defense attorney and your prosecutor. So, you know, what you do to her arguments, why don't you do that to your arguments? I can't tell you how physically painful that was for me. I've said before, it was almost like physically turning off a switch in my brain to force myself to listen to her, to hear her, and to, in effect, argue for her side and to help defend her. There was a pattern in me that had to be laid aside. I had to throw it off. It wouldn't just go away. It would have developed into something that would have hurt our relationship. I had a good friend who Diane and I knew in Massachusetts before we moved to Northern Virginia. His name was Israel. And Israel was a very heavy smoker. And he tried to quit many times. You know, he really didn't want to smoke, but he loved smoking. And he, he, he liked everything about it. So Israel is approaching 60. He might have been 60. He goes to the doctor for physical. And Israel's wife is Olga. They had three kids. And Israel married later in life. So his kids were still young. So I'm, I'm guessing his oldest was a daughter. And she was probably 14, 15, 16 at the time. I don't know. Israel's not feeling well. He's not doing well physically. So he goes to the doctor, and the doctor realizes he's got to read Israel the riot act, and he does. And the thing that captures Israel's attention is the doctor gets in his grill and says to him, you are not going to see your daughter get married if you don't stop smoking. This is going to kill you. And for the first time in his life, Israel says, he realized, these cigarettes are my enemy. I mean... I enjoy it. It feels good. That's my enemy. So he says he walked out of the hospital, had a pack of cigarettes in his pocket, crushed it, threw it away, and never smoked after that. Wow, I say to Israel. That's amazing. I can't believe God did that. Yeah. I mean, Israel, that's so incredible and so easy. Oh, no, 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 Ed. It wasn't easy. I mean, almost every hour I had to throw it away. For a while, and then it was every day I had to throw it away. And then, you know, still I would love to go smoke, but I have to throw it away. I have to get rid of that weight because it is a weight. There are times when I'm in the middle of a cigarette, it doesn't feel like a weight, but it is a weight. And we have to throw aside, lay aside everything that is a weight that hinders us, that slows us down. Imagine us trying to run a race. I picked 10 of us at random. We're going to go from this side to the other. 
you're in, you'd be stupid, but you're in, and with the 10 of you line up over there, and for nine of you, I say, okay, wait a minute, here are 40-pound dumbbells, carry those. What? Not fair. You're running at a decided disadvantage when you don't throw these things aside. Secondly, about throwing off, I want you to notice that this is an individual affair. There are some things that may weigh me down and entangle me that do not entangle you. Some runners shave their heads. Others run with long hair. Some of us cannot go to a winery. It just, it's a weight that we don't need. For others of us, this is no problem. But if, if it's a weight, we must throw it off. Regardless of who else does it, regardless of the temporary pleasure it gives us, we must throw it off because it entangles us. Third, I want you to notice the special attention that the author pays to sin. Let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, or as the English Standard Version says, the sin that that clings so closely, the sin that so easily entangles. I have a pair of gray shoes that I wear regularly during the week at Gateway. Sometimes I, I wear it on Sunday mornings. They're super comfortable I think they look cool, which is the number one criteria, Um, but they're really, really comfortable, but I don't wear them every day because they're the kind, I know you know what I'm talking about, they have these really thick laces, and they will not stay tied. One day here at work, here at Gateway, I actually put tape over them so they would stay tied. I was so tired of them coming untied. They just come untied all the time. This week, I wore them one day (laughs) to the office. And I was down here, and I had to go to the end of the hall for something. I don't remember what. So I had to walk quickly. This is me walking quickly down the hall. And I was walking quickly, so my shoelace came undone, didn't know it. And because I'm walking that way, on this step, the shoelace kicks out in front of me. You're getting the picture already. So when I bring my left foot up, I step on the shoelace, don't know it, and whoops! And it almost trips me. It entangles me. This is what... These issues accomplish in our lives, slowing us down, hindering us, entangling us. Let's give sin a definition. Sin is anything we think or do through which we're trying to find our identity, our purpose, or our pleasure apart from God. So sin is anything we think or do through which we're trying to find our identity, our purpose, or our pleasure apart from God. These things cling to us. They entangle us. Some of them feel great and right for a season, but they entangle us. Okay, I'm going to trot out a theory this morning. So I want you to put your, wait a minute, Ed, hat on. But I I have this theory, I think I'm right, that anything that entangles us is sin. Anything that trips us up is sin. Now let me tell you why you should be a little skeptical of that. You should be thinking immediately, wait a minute, there are really bad circumstances in life. They're not my sin, and they cause friction, difficulty. I know circumstances can be encumbrances in our lives. We can be burdened at times by difficult circumstances. Imagine, some of you don't need to imagine, losing your job. That's a burdensome circumstance. In effect, lays weight. Imagine a serious health concern. It's difficult. But I don't, hold on to this, don't snooze. I don't believe these events are entanglements. I don't believe they tie us up, not in and of themselves. I don't believe they prevent our emotional and spiritual progress. These kinds of circumstances can actually serve to strengthen our character and our relationships. 
Some marriages are stronger after they've weathered serious financial difficulty, for example. The entanglement comes through our sinful reactions to those circumstances. When we get angrier than we have a right to be, when we cling to unforgiveness or even grief, when we cling to it far too long or we allow it to seep into bitterness, when we lash out or when we build up walls or when we protect ourselves, this is what entangles us, our sinful reactions. This is what clings to us and trips us up. This is what ends up damaging our progress and our relationships and ultimately our health. Again, some of you have known me long enough to know that uh, my middle sister is, lives in Alabama and her name is Boots. That's her real given name. Yes, there were a set of parents who gave a human baby the name Boots. And she married, had two boys, great marriage, great couple. Their second son, they gave a relatively normal name. They named him Christian. And he's just a great young man. Christian became a very serious Christ follower early in his teenage years. He just, was just serious about his connection with God. When he was about 20, he felt God had laid on his heart that he wanted him to be a minister. So Christian and Diane and I had kind of a special connection because of that. Not long after Christian felt this way, made that decision in his life, he was diagnosed with a form of childhood cancer. He was kind of at the far edge, really too old to have had this kind of cancer which is part of the reason they did not discover it very early. So by the time they discovered Christian's cancer, it was just too far advanced. And he ended up passing away. Just an aside, Christian was such an awesome kid. He actually came here one time to visit us. Those of you who have been part of Gateway for a while, you may remember this. This is probably eight years ago. Christian actually preached for me one Sunday at Gateway and, by the way, did a very good job. So Christian, so awesome, he went up to his church in Alabama a couple of weeks before he died, sat on the steps in their auditorium. They have one of those auditoriums that steps all around the front of the stage that lead up to the stage. He sat on the steps, had a good friend of his film him, and Christian preached his own funeral sermon. And my sister asked me if I would do a homily at Christian's funeral, so I had to follow Christian. So imagine that. I was weeping like a baby. And there were 1,600 people at Christian's funeral. Most of them were teenagers, and many of them were not Christ followers. So anyway, Christian died. A few of you have experienced something like this. But those of us who are married and and parents can at least imagine the impact of this and the the lifelong uh, impact of this. And not difficult to imagine how, what an entanglement this could become. But I don't believe it has become a severe entanglement for Boots and her husband Chuck. They have, in fact, turned it into ministry. They've ministered to a number of other families who've been in that same situation. There was a group of kids who were not Christ followers, who were at Christian's funeral and friends of Christian's, people that Christian had been praying for for years. Individually, Chuck and Boots were able to say, to them, you know, thank you so much for coming or seeing them the next week. Thanks for coming to Christian Funeral. You know he's been praying for you. And they began to meet in a Bible study with those kids. And several of those kids became Christians. Boots and Chuck were involved by this point in the marriages of several of them. Great ministry has come out of that because they have allowed that. It doesn't mean that it wasn't fiercely difficult, but if Boots had allowed her grief to turn into if it had calcified into absolute bitterness and if, it, if she'd allowed that to create distance between herself and God and herself and others, 
think of the entanglement of that? Can you think of the full stop that that would have caused in her life? We've got to throw off everything that hinders, and especially the sin that entangles us. Secondly, the second powerful punching proverbial encouragement is we got to run with perseverance. Again, I want you to notice that this business of being a Christian is a very active process. Following Christ is purposeful. It's active. We're going somewhere. There's something for us to do. In fact, the author goes as far as to call it, quote, a race marked out for us. I like the New English Bible. It's another English translation. It puts that phrase, the race marked out for us. It says it like this. This is so awesome. It translates that phrase, the race for which we are entered. And you and I have been entered into a race, spoiler alert, by God. We've been entered into a race. There's somewhere for us to go. Our life has purpose. There's something for you to do in 2020. And I have to say, that means the exact opposite of idling. That means the exact opposite of just showing up. Apologies in advance, but there are some of you still here that are connecting to Gateway or on the edges of Gateway, and you're still just showing up. You're coming once or twice a month. And that's not going to gauge your heart in something thrilling like the life of faith. That is not what you're designed for. That's this kind of living. And you can be a fun thing to play with, and you can even hold a door open. But it's not what you were designed for. Some of you know uh, Jeremiah 29, 11. I've heard a couple of you say that's your life verse. The prophet Jeremiah is writing to the people of Israel in a really tough time, and he says to him, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Jeremiah just feels the unction of God. He's speaking for God. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and give you a hope, not plans to harm you or hurt you. I've got something for you to do. We've got somewhere to go, and we're not going to get there if we're leading entangled lives. If we're going to finish our race and finish it well, and we can, we've got to lead untangled lives. We've got to run, and we must run with perseverance. In other words, it's not just that we have to be active and run our race, but we have to run with perseverance. We have to hang in there. Look, we're going to fail at times. But that's just part of the race for which we have been entered. It took me years to learn this, by the way. My response to failure historically was either discouragement or anger. Discouragement as in, what's wrong with me? How did I mess this up? Or anger as in, why did this have to happen? And those responses got me entangled. It took me years to learn that failure, and I mean real blow-it kind of failure, like I really messed this up, I didn't do that, and I was supposed to, or I really hurt you, and it was me, I hurt you. Real blow it kind of failure, that's simply part of the race for which I've been entered. And it presents an opportunity for me to learn. I can't slow down and whine. I can't stop and pout. I've got somewhere to go, and I'm not going to get there if I get entangled. There will also be times of loss in our lives. People are going to move away. We're going to lose something we value. Someone's going to die. That's part of the race for which we are entered. There will be difficult points for every one of us. There will be in 2020. Let's remember, our goal is not to look good. This isn't a a style race. We don't earn style points. Our goal is to finish. This is a race of purpose. 
And we were designed for it. There's something to be accomplished. The magazine Runner's World, some of you are obnoxious enough runners, you know this magazine, but I can't imagine. But Runner's World told the story of Beth Ann DeSantis, I think is her name. And she was trying to qualify for the 1992 American Olympic Trials as a marathoner. Now, a female runner has to complete the 26-mile, pause for dramatic effect, run in less than two hours and 45 minutes. So remember that, under two hours and 45 minutes to qualify for the Olympic trials. So Beth signs up at a recognized venue, and she evidently started really strong, but she began to have trouble around mile 23. It's ridiculous that someone even talks about that, but she reached the final straightaway at two hours and 43 minutes. So this is doable. That meant she had two minutes left to qualify for the Olympic trials for which she's been training for years. 200 yards from the finish line, she fell. She stumbled and fell. Badly skint her knees, elbows. She was dazed and confused, and she stayed down on the ground for 20 seconds. The crowd knew the timing, and they knew what was up. They knew that this was a qualifying race. And so they began to yell. And then they began to chant, get up, get up. And then someone knew her, so the chant turned into, Beth, get up, Beth, get up. When she got on her feet, the clock was at a little past 2.44, less than a minute to go. Beth Ann staggered, but she began walking. Five yards short of the finish line, with 10 seconds to go, she fell again. And then she began to crawl. The crowd cheering. She crossed the finish line on her hands and knees. And her time, two hours, 44 minutes, and 57 seconds. She qualified. She finished. She didn't earn any style points, by the way. But that wasn't the criteria. Sometimes we stagger. Sometimes we even fall. But let's keep going. Because the point is to finish. We've got something to do this year. Let's finish. Look, aside, little parentheses. I know that this is not a huge crowd, but I know that there are eight or ten people in here who are staggering this morning. You're stumbling for whatever reason. Don't leave without having someone cheer for you. There's going to be a group of people over here after the service who will pray for you, and Jesus will cheer. Now, I'm not telling you that you will stumble, the blood marks will go away, although they may. But I am telling you, this is how to have life. Let's get it. All right, third power punch prompt that he gives us to help us lead unentangled lives is we've got to fix our eyes on Jesus. We've got to focus on Jesus. I think this author means this in the most practical sense. He has written a letter of 13 chapters, which is a, just a long meditation on Jesus. I think he means for us to find ways to encourage ourselves and others to have Jesus on our minds because... He says, Jesus is the pioneer or the author or the founder of our faith. In other words, our faith begins with Jesus' activity in us and around us. And Jesus is the perfecter of our faith. 
So some take this to mean that he is the full expression of faith, the perfect example of it. And it does, but I think it means much more than that. I believe Jesus is the one who works faith to its completion in us. That's his job. And then look at what the author says about Jesus. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God. Okay, part of Jesus' secret was remembering the reward that was in front of him and the benefits it would bring. I'm going to say that again. Part of Jesus' secret was remembering the reward that was in front of him and the benefits it would bring. My problem is too often I'm far too focused on squeezing all the pleasure that I can out of right now. I don't take any time to remember the reward that is to come and the benefits that it will bring. I'm reminded of my favorite C.S. Lewis quote. We're not going to be much longer, but you've got to hear this quote. C.S. Lewis said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is being offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Part of Jesus' secret was remembering the reward that was in front of him and the benefits it would bring. And let's be honest, we're never going to experience anywhere near the depth of trial and suffering that he experienced and he made it through. So we certainly can. All right, let me read verse 3 one more time. The author says this, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now notice that the author is well aware of how we tend to grow weary and lose heart. You're not alone in that characteristic, by the way. I am the chief lose harder. And what's the antidote to our weariness? When we just had it, what's the antidote? For many of us, we tend to deal with our weariness with distraction. For others of us, we have an even more unhealthy response, like anger or some addictive sin pattern. But the author of Hebrews doesn't shy away from giving us an actual prescription, right? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Find a way to spend some time thinking about Jesus, focusing on Jesus. On day six of the ill-fated mission Apollo 13, the astronauts needed to make a critical course correction and if they failed, they might not ever return to earth. So those are some dire circumstances. To conserve power, they had to shut down the onboard computer that steered the craft. But the astronauts needed to conduct a 39-second burn of the main engines during the shutdown to correct course. The problem, of course, is how to steer the vehicle without computer assistance. Astronaut Jim Lovell determined if they could keep a fixed point in space in view through their tiny window, then they could steer the craft effectively manually. And so they looked out their window and found the focal point. It was Earth. Some of you remember this from the 1995 movie Apollo 13. For 39 agonizing seconds, Lovell focused on keeping the Earth in view. And by not losing sight of that reference point, the three astronauts avoided disaster, made it back home. This is what the author of Hebrews is telling us. If we're going to finish our race successfully, we will have to fix our eyes on Jesus. 
the author and perfecter of our faith. We've got somewhere to go. The race has been marked out for us, and it will require everything in us. But we can finish, and finish well if we throw off everything that entangles us. And if we run with perseverance, running through the stumbles and the difficulties, and if we focus on, if we fix our eyes on, if we focus on the fixed point of Jesus. So parents, I want you to imagine that you're going to take your child to an amusement park this spring. I'm sorry I put that idea in their heads. Kids, make it Disney World. And it's just, you go July 4th and it's like freakishly crowded and you don't know what to do. So you, like me, decide you're going to be an abusive parent and you want to tie one end on your hand and one end on another. This will work very well. This will not. Wives, if you're married, imagine that you want to encourage your husband. So you want to tie a note and hang it on the rearview mirror so every time he's in his car, he can be reminded and you're writing, I love you and God loves you too and you want to hang it from his rearview mirror. This will work very well. It was designed for it. This will not. You have something to do this year and with your life. It matters. And if you are entangled, your health, your schedule, your finances, your relationships, if you are entangled, this will not work. This will. Let's end this morning. Go old school. Stand with me. And let's read together Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, whoa, hold on. What is the therefore, therefore? It's pointing back to those witnesses. They made it. Barely. Most of them had no style points, but they made it. And their lives counted. Let's go on. I won't keep interrupting. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, except there. Because it is our response to those things that trips us up. It becomes the shoestring we step on. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. That's a... It's been marked out. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him. So, Father, hear us this morning as people who lose heart and grow weary. And if we forget this on Thursday, you remind us that we said this morning, we're in. And we're going to keep running. And we're going to fix our eyes on you the author and perfecter of our faith because you were aware of what was coming make us aware in Jesus name Amen uh, let's sing a verse and a chorus we'll start with the first verse Rebecca let's just do the verse and the chorus Choir, this morning let's sing this one like we mean it this time uh, look all of you is more than enough if you believe that say Amen and I think if God uh, were able to speak to us this morning, and he is able, then he would say, really? And we would have to say, all right. Sometimes it doesn't look at it like it, but really. And he would say, I know. Well done. All right, you're my supply.
We're going to sing that again. Go back, Pete. You are my supply, my bread of life. Still more awesome than I know. Yeah, just give us a beat for this, Lance. Come in big on the chorus and wake us up. All right, this is, this is you and Rebecca, Nate. You are my supply. How you doing? All right, here we go. You are my supply. Let's do it. Come on, choir. My supply, my breath of life, still more awesome than I know. You are my reward worth living for. Still more awesome. All right, all of you, choir. Thank you for, for coming. Happy Sunday. Remember that Jesus loves you and to, to love your neighbor. Thank you.